welcome to the podcast this week. What podcast? It's, it's crime culture. It is! It is, yay! We made hot it another week. We are. And we made it hot off the heels of our uh, live stream. Yeah. Which was super, super fun. Which was dope. Yeah, and we want to see a lot more people on the live stream next time. So you should join our Patreon. And every month you can join our live stream, which is a fun time for everyone. Totally so, agree. Yeah. So now we're going to jump into this week's episode. Woo! And if you read the title, it is the Collar Bomb Heist. It kind of goes by... Oh, a, what? Shouldn't we introduce ourselves? <laughs> I guess we can introduce ourselves. We don't have to introduce ourselves every episode. I don't... But I guess I, this But is, I feel like we've been introducing ourselves every episode. I, I know. Every episode. I don't want to break that streak. Fine. Who are you? Hi, I'm Caitlin. Hi, I'm Haley. Oh, hi. And now we're going to get into the episode. And now we're going to talk about the Collar Bomb Heist. <laughs> the Collar Bomb Heist, yeah. Uh, it's called a couple different things. The Pizza Bomber case, like... A bunch of different stuff, but I'm going with the collar bomb heist. So, setting it up, we're going to talk about Brian Wells first. Woo! My so, dad's name is Brian, not Brian Wells. And you'll, it, you'll, we'll say that it's not your dad. Now Ready? we're going to talk about not Brian Mahar. Anyway, no. so Brian Wells dropped out of high school in 1973 at the age of 16, and it's thought that his declining grades were a result of stress at home after his father's death. He died from MS at the age of 60. Woof. And, yeah, rough. Um, according to an Erie District psycho uh, psychological study, Wells' verbal and performance IQ were higher than 90% of the population in that area. So he was no dummy, and this will be a key factor as we move on no he sounds um, like one of those bill gates or mark zuckerberg types like super high iq and then just drops out of school and yeah th well this iq test i guess was taken before his grades started going down but um, yeah but your iq doesn't change doesn't it it doesn't no your iq doesn't change unless there's some other kind of extenuating circumstances like a head injury or like mental health that causes your like mental faculties maybe to depression. intelligence maybe depression but again i feel like i mean if that's the case i'd be fucking stupid um but no i just i i'm pretty sure that your intelligence is not affected unless it's some crazy outside like yeah thing or whatever but no i mean because look at people who like you see all the time there are kids in school or something like that and they're testing off the charts on their IQ tests and on whatever those standardized tests are, but their mm -hmm. grades aren't reflective of that. Anyone in the psychology field, let Hell. us know. Um, but so after he dropped out of school, he got a job as a pizza delivery man at Mamma Mia's Pizzeria in Mama his hometown. Mamma Mia! <laughs> yes, this was in Erie, Pennsylvania as well. Are we and going to mention this in the future? This the pizza place? Pizzeria? Yes. Is it? Is it? Is it? No. You're not going to be able to say Mamma Mia more than once. <sighs> Here we go again. <laughs> did you get it? <laughs> I did get it. Thank you very much. Oh, I got I it as myself. soon as I said Mamma Mia. <laughs> I fucking love myself. All right. Here we go. So he was described by staff as a trusted worker and neighbors and friends said that he was hardworking and reliable. He enjoyed a routine 
For him, it was waking up at the same time every morning, caring for his cats, oh. reading the local paper, and eating breakfast at McDonald's, and then going to work. Spoiler alert. Are the cats going to be okay? Yeah, cats are fine. Cats I don't okay. think are ever mentioned again, but okay, I would assume fine. they're fine. Cats are still but, alive, and they're still happy. Yes. So this is all to say that Brian Wells is a very simple guy. Um, there's a lot more information on him in the documentary series, which I'll get to towards the end, but that's just a general outline. So, setting it up. Okay. Here comes the case. So at 1.30 okay. in the afternoon on August 28, 2003, Wells received a call to deliver two small sausage and pepperoni pizzas to 8631 Peach Street. And the address was WSEE TV's transmitting tower, and it was at the end of a dirt road just a few miles from the pizzeria. So it was weird that it wasn't to the house, but whatever. You, you get yeah. the call, you deliver the pizza. You take it where it's supposed to be. Yeah. So the exact events of what happened next are uncertain, but what we do know is that the next time we see Brian Wells is about an hour later at 2.28 p.m. at the PNC Bank at 7200 Peach Street in Erie, Pennsylvania, and he's carrying a cane. And uh -oh. he handed the teller a multi-page note and asked to speak to the manager. The teller told Wells that the bank manager was not available until 3 p.m. Wells responded that he didn't have until 3 p.m. and needed $250,000 right away. It's at this point that Wells lifted up his white t-shirt with the word guest spray painted on it and showed the teller a bomb that was locked around his neck. So That's the teller, <laughs> yeah, not great. Not something you see every day. No. Uh, the teller then reads the note that was handed to her, which says, quote, gather employees with access codes to the vault, work fast to fill the bags of $250,000. You only have 15 minutes, end quote. Okay. So the teller told Wells that she could not open the vault, but emptied various cash drawers, placing $8,702 into a bag Wells left, and he took a lollipop on his way out. Because mm, why not? So wholesome. Yeah. Probably to calm his nerves. I guess. But uh, there's, like, um, I don't know if there's police footage, but there's at least stills from the security cameras of the bank that show that he didn't really look too frantic or concerned, which okay. becomes a, a, a thing later on. Okay. So... In addition to the letter from the bank teller, or for the bank teller, the perpetrators had given Wells two pages of handwritten instructions addressed to bomb hostage. It listed several timed tasks to complete uh, and collect keys that would delay the bomb's detonation and eventually defuse it. The note also warned Wells that he was being watched, so if he attempted to contact police, the bomb would explode. The words, quote, this powerful booby trap bomb can be removed only by following our instructions. Act now, think later, or you will die. Those are all in caps. Cute. End quote. Uh, so that was printed at the bottom of the instructions. So Wells was part of this hellish scavenger hunt, and if he did everything that he was told to do, he'd end up with all the keys and the combinations he needed to free himself from the lock around his neck. Failing any of these or disobeying orders would result in his death. Wells okay. completed the first task, entering the PNC bank on Peach Street and giving the teller the note demanding the $250,000. The second note read, quote, exit the bank with the money and go to the McDonald's restaurant. Get out of the car and go to the small sign reading drive through slash open 24 hours in the flower bed. By the sign, there is a rock with a note taped to the bottom. It has your next instructions, end quote. So Wells drove straight there after he left the bank with the bag of cash. 
He retrieved a two-page note from the flower bed, directing him to a wooded area several miles away, but he was arrested before he got to that clue. Police spotted Wells sitting in his car and arrested him. He identified himself as Brian Wells, said that he had robbed the PNC Bank, and he claimed that three unnamed black men placed a bomb around his neck, gave him the cane, which was actually a disguised shotgun, and then they told him to rob the bank and complete several other tasks, and if he failed, the bomb would go off. So, yeah, and I'm sure the eerie Pennsylvania cops were like, all right, crazy man. Uh, so they didn't attempt to disarm the bomb because obviously they're not qualified to do so. Um, also they didn't think that, um, Wells was acting in a way that a man with a bomb around his neck would react. I mean, he was being calm and not really freaking out at all, like speaking very candidly about what was going on. And they thought that the bomb was probably fake and that Wells was involved in the plot. Okay. Still, they called the bomb squad at 3.04 p.m., more than 30 minutes after the first 911 call was made. The first 911 call was made, um, I'm assuming, right after he robbed the bank. Okay. So, uh, Wells sat on the pavement with his hands cuffed behind his back and his legs curled beneath him, waiting for the bomb squad to arrive. The police, meanwhile, took positions behind their cars with their guns drawn. At one point, Wells asked a trooper, quote, Did you call my boss? He was worried that his boss at the pizza shop would think that he was slacking off. So See, another, I, I don't think that he's part of this. Like who the, cares I, that much about their job? Yeah, but that would make me think that he is a part of it and he knows that the bomb is fake so that, Oh, uh, that's true. Cause why would he care about his job if there was a bomb strapped to his neck? I don't, I don't know. know. So this is not to go off on a personal tangent. Cause I know people hate that. There was a gunman on my campus a couple of years ago, and everything obviously turned out fine. Like, we're here and you haven't heard about it. But there was a kid, everybody, we were all in a closet panicking, and there was a kid who literally called his dad asking him to ask his mom if he could not do chores at the end of this whole thing. If he could just have a day to himself. Like, yeah, I people, guess people react to trauma differently. Yeah, people, I think in times of crisis and stress, like, he could have been in shock. Again, I don't really know how this is going to go. I kind of have a feeling where you're going in terms of pop culture, because I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah. But I, I just, that's that's my first clue. The fact that he's just a regular dude, stays with his routine, all of that. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know, but go on. Yeah, I'm it'll, sure you it'll get a little. It gets more confusing as as oh, the story great. goes on. Just what I wanted. So Brian Wells also repeatedly pleaded with the police, telling him that the bomb was live, and said, "Quote: Why is nobody trying to get this thing off me? I don't have a lot of time." He pulled the key out and started the timer. I heard the thing ticking when he did it. It's going to go off. I'm not lying. End quote. He's not lying. Around. Yeah. He said. There's also there's also video He's of this. I don't know if it's still available online, but there was video of this whole event. Right. Um, Around 3.18 p.m., Wells started to fidget and scoot backwards. The bomb locked around his neck started to beep, and then it went off. Um, Wells was blasted onto his back with the bomb ripping a five-inch gash in his chest. Uh. He died on the pavement. Uh, The bomb squad arrived three minutes later. Ooh. Yeah. That's the, the... I don't like that. Yeah, not a not a fun story to tell. No. 
here's where everything starts going insane. So immediately after Wells' death, police began looking for evidence. In his car, they found the cane that was a gun and the instructions telling him which bank to rob, how much money to ask for, and where he would get his next clue. It was then that they realized that when Wells was arrested, he was on his way to the next clue. They picked up the scavenger hunt and located the container with the orange tape in the woods. In it, they found a note telling them to go two miles out of town where the next clue would be in a jar, also in a wooded area. Police found the jar, but it was empty. Whoever had put the bomb collar on Brian Wells was most likely watching him and the police, and then they called off the entire thing. Meanwhile, what was left of the bomb was inspected. It consisted of two parts, a triple-banded metal collar with four keyholes and a three-digit combination lock. It basically looked like a handcuff. Um, the collar also contained two six-inch pipe bombs packed with smokeless powder, two sunbeam kitchen timers, and an electric countdown timer. To throw the bomb squad off, the maker of the bomb ran wires throughout it that connected to nothing. Um, although the device appeared to be sophisticated, agents said that it was built like a child's toy bracelet and that the hinge would have snapped given the proper pressure. Although the note claimed that Wells would gain extra time for each key that he found, police later traveled the entire route on the note and could not complete it in the time the note allotted. In other words, regardless of what had happened, Wells would not have had enough time to get the bomb defused. So whoever staged this entire scavenger hunt knew at the end of this, there was going to be a point where they needed to grab everything from him because the bomb was going to go off. Okay. Yeah. So, skipping forward a little bit, on September 20th, which was less than a month after the heist, a man named Bill Rothstein called 911 and said, quote, at 8645 Peach Street in the garage, there is a frozen body. It's in the freezer. End quote. It turned out to be his own address, and when the police found the frozen body of James Roden... Rothstein said he was killed because he was going to report the collar bomb plot to the police. Rothstein told oh. the police that Roden's murder had weighed on him for weeks, so much so that he contemplated suicide. He even wrote a suicide note. In it, he apologized, quote, to those who care for or about me, end quote. He identified the body in the freezer and then said he had nothing to do with Roden's murder. The start of the suicide note was a little odd, and it read, quote, this has nothing to do with the Wells case, end quote. Okay. So this guy has seemingly no connection to Brian Wells. So it's a little odd that he would say, oh, by the way, the reason I killed myself has nothing to do with this other crime that I'm not even <laughs> connected to in any, in any way possible. But whatever. So it starts to get a little weirder and the connections start coming together when you find out that Rothstein's backyard extends almost directly into WSE TV's transmission tower where the um, pizzas were supposed to be delivered to. Okay. So Rothstein then went on to explain to police how Roden ended up in the freezer. He claimed that in mid-August, his ex-girlfriend, Marjorie Deal Armstrong, told him that she had a fight with her live-in boyfriend over money and shot him with a Remington shotgun. She Cute. needed help. <laughs> yeah. Just casual. Why not? Yeah. Talk to your ex- ex-boyfriend about getting rid of your other ex-boyfriend now. So Precious. she needed help getting rid of the body. 
Deal Armstrong maintained that she did not kill Roden over money. Instead, she insisted that it was a crime of passion brought on by his abuse. Regardless, Roden was dead, and Rothstein went over to her house. He helped clean up the scene and hid the corpse in his uh, chest freezer in his garage. On top of that, he melted down the 12-gauge shotgun and, sc and scattered the pieces throughout Erie County. While he did everything Deal Armstrong wanted him to do, he couldn't bring himself to grind up the body with an ice crusher. That's what Deal Armstrong wanted him to do with it. Okay. <clears throat> Instead, he called 911 because he was afraid of what Marjorie Deal Armstrong would do to him. So, the next day, on September 21st, Deal Armstrong was arrested for the murder of Rodin. After her arrest, she implicated Rothstein and herself in the collar bomb case. Deal Armstrong told investigators that she was not involved in the plot, but admitted that she knew about it and that she supplied the kitchen timers that went into the collar bomb. She also confided that Brian Wells was not a victim, but was part of the plan and went on to say that Rothstein was the mastermind of the entire plot. Even before implicating herself, she was already a suspect in the collar bomb plot. Police met with four separate informants who said that Deal Armstrong talked to them in detail about the crime. One of, uh, one of them kept notes of the conversation where Deal Armstrong alleged that she killed Roden because he, quote, was going to tell about the robbery, end quote. The FBI believes that Marjorie Deal Armstrong devised the pizza bomber heist to save her, uh, to have her father, Harold Deal, uh, killed so that she can inherit some of his estate. His estate was once valued at around $1.8 but he was giving much of it away to friends and neighbors in the years before that he died. And she wanted to have her piece before it was too late, and he got rid of everything. So she had to come up with $125,000 to pay a man named Kenneth Barnes to kill her father. Are we following along? Yes. Okay. So... There, I know there's a lot of names being. I was going to say right this now. is this is a lot, but I think we're getting well, it's it's getting very clue. Here here's here's the key players. Brian Wells is the victim. He okay. was killed with the collar bomb. Marjorie Deal Armstrong is uh, she killed her ex boyfriend, and Bill Rothstein helped her hide the body. And now those two are implicated in the collar bomb heist. But now there's another guy, Kenneth Barnes, who yes. they needed to kill. Marjorie's father. Here we go. Yeah. So, Kenneth Barnes was a former television repairman turned crack dealer and an old friend of Deal Armstrong's and spoke quite freely about the collar bomb case with his brother-in-law in the months after the heist. His brother-in-law then told police what he had heard. Barnes was already in jail on an unrelated drug charge at the time. So, with, when he was threatened with more jail time, Barnes agreed to a deal. He told investigators everything about the crime for a reduced sentence. Like Rothstein, Barnes said that Deal Armstrong was the mastermind behind the collar bomb plot. He alleged that she needed to come up with the money for him to kill her father so that she could inherit his fortune. So it's starting to get more of a clear picture now. Yeah. Although it seemed like Deal Armstrong was the mastermind, Barnes and Rothstein were also major players in the plot. Rothstein was after money as well to settle his parents' estate. But they needed someone to wear the collar bomb and carry out the robbery. Enter Brian Wells. According to the FBI, Brian Wells led a bit of a double life, and the unassuming police uh, pizza delivery man reportedly had a relationship with Jessica Hoopstick, who was a sex worker. The two had sex roughly twice a month for five years. Okay. 
bit of a long relationship at that point. I was going to say, like some, you know what? If that's the type of relationship you want to have, you go. You do your Again, thing. Again, part of his routine. Yeah. So along with Barnes, who was a client of Hoopstick, Brian Wells would buy crack and trade it to Hoopstick for sex. In the oh. weeks leading up to the robbery, Wells fell behind on payment to his crack dealer and needed cash. Hoopstick, meanwhile, was offered $5,000 by Barnes to find a gopher who would be scared into robbing a bank. She gave them the name of Brian Wells. At trial, Marjorie Deal Armstrong told witnesses that Rothstein and Wells knew each other and that they, uh, they even measured Wells' neck for the collar bomb. She noted that Wells was well aware of the plan but didn't know to the extent in which he would be participating. One month before the collar bomb heist, Deal Armstrong, Rodin, her ex-boyfriend, and Wells met at Barnes's house to discuss the robbery. As part of the initial bank robbery plan, Rodin was supposed to be the driver for Wells. That didn't happen, of course. Wells ended up driving himself. Right. Rodin was going to warn the police about the bank robbery, and that's when Deal Armstrong killed him. Oh. So, yeah. Yeah. So if caught by the police, Wells was instructed to tell them that three black men forced the collar bomb on him and were holding him hostage. On August 22nd. Sorry? I said, you know, like you do. Yeah. Just make up some weird racist story. Yeah. So on August 22nd, 2003, the day before the robbery, Rothstein, Deal Armstrong and Wells met at Rothstein's house to go over the plan. After the successful robbery, Wells was supposed to hand all of the money over to Rothstein. The next day, however, when Brian Wells got to the television tower, he discovered that the plot had changed and that the bomb was real. By then, it was too late. The plan was in motion, and Brian Wells was robbing a bank to save his life. Yikes. After robbing the PNC bank of $8,702, a very nervous Wells parked his car in the parking lot of the nearby Eyeglass World. Troopers who saw that Wells matched the description of the bank robber arrested and handcuffed him, and we went. We go on with where we had left off on the story. Right. So Wells was under strict orders not to contact the police, and if he did, he'd die. And then they um, they would know if he did because he was being followed, like it said in the note. Right. So both Deal Armstrong and Barnes watched Wells rob the bank with binoculars, sitting in her red Jeep Cherokee. Rothstein was there as well, but he was in his own vehicle. And after detonating the bomb, the three returned to Rothstein's house, and they all piled into Rothstein's car. It was then that the trio made their way to the undisclosed destination. Before they got there, Deal Armstrong had them stop at the side of I-79, so she would retrieve something that was left in the empty jar. She tossed this unknown object into the backseat of the car. So this was the object that the police went to in the note, but found out it was never there. So this is where she cut off the scavenger hunt, so they would have no more clues. So while Deal Armstrong was sentenced to jail in January 2005 for organizing the collar bomb plot, many believe that the real mastermind got away with the murder. According to Jim Fisher, who was a retired FBI criminal investigator, there's no way that Deal Armstrong could have planned the pizza bomber caper. Fisher points to a profile of the collar bomber generated by the FBI's behavioral analysis unit. And I really like um, when the FBI releases the, um, the profile of, of uh, Mastermind because there's so many points that it's like perfectly real 
Yeah. Like, I think the FBI um, released the profile of um, whoever had killed uh, Bundy's victims before they knew who he was. And, like, everything was, like, to a T. Like, he was, like, super smart, like, young, blah, blah, blah. So, it goes like this. Quote, it continues to be the opinion of the department that this is much more than a mere bank robbery. The behavior seen in this crime was choreographed by Collar Bomber, who they refer to in the, in the profile, um, watching on the sidelines according to a written script in which he attempted to direct others to do what he wanted them to do. Because of the complex nature of this crime, the FBI's Behavioral Analysis Unit believes that there were multiple motives for the offender. The money was not the primary one, end quote. Okay. Multiple motives mean that the bank robbery wasn't the point of the whole ordeal. The architects of the crime didn't care about the money. Instead, they wanted to craft a twisted puzzle that would defy explanation, which is very Black Mirror, which we will get to. So for Fisher, this doesn't sound like anything that Deal Armstrong would do. While she had a difficult past, she was bipolar and she was on social security disability for a mental illness. She was also a hoarder. Um... While Deal Armstrong was smart, she was also the valedictorian of her high school class and earned a master's in education, she no longer had the mental capacity to organize and carry out anything like the pizza bomb heist uh, or design and build the actual bomb. And the chances are good that if she did want to kill her father, she wouldn't have gone the James James Bond die-hard with a vengeance type length to create the unnecessary, complex, and time-consuming plot it's more likely that she would have gotten uh, the James Roden route and just took matters into her own hands. So right. why would she need to devise this whole thing to kill someone when she, it's proven that she's more than capable of doing it herself? So the FBI's profile states that the person who built the bomb was, quote, comfortable around a wide variety of power tools and shop machines, a frugal person who saved scraps and sundry materials in order to reuse them for various projects the type of person who takes pride in building a variety of things, end quote. To anyone with a passing interest of the pizza bomb heist, this sounds more like Bill Rothstein. He was a handyman who had the skills to design and create the elaborate explosive device in the bank robbery. On top of that, Fisher pointed out uh, to the description of the mastermind directing others according to a written script, the script that contained the information only Rothstein had access to. It's possible that Rothstein was toying with investigators from the start by building the bomb that could not be defused and creating a useless scavenger hunt that would confuse the police. Then there was the 911 call, which he fingered Dale Armstrong in the Roden murder, and he said he wasn't aware of the collar bomb caper and had nothing to hide. He was in control of the collar bomb plot and his own interrogation from the very start. So Barnes and Rothstein said that Dale Armstrong was the master bomb Mastermind of the Master Collar Mom. Bomb plot. <laughs> Master Mom. The most evil mother. Master Mom. <laughs> um, but all of the evidence points to Rothstein as being the actual mastermind. Master Rothstein built the intricate bomb and cane gun and executed the heinous crime that grabbed the world uh, through the headlines and baffled authorities for years. He recruited the co-conspirators. Um, he could easily control and kept crucial details about the plot secret until that day. Until his dying days, Rothstein denied knowing anything about the collar bomb plot. He died of lymphoma in July of 2004 before being linked to the collar bomb heist. 
And oh, wow. like I mentioned earlier, in January of 2005, Marjorie Dill Armstrong pled guilty to the collar bomb case and the murder of Brian Wells, but it was seen that she was mentally ill. She was sentenced to 7 to 20 years in a state prison. In September 2008, Barnes pled guilty to the conspiracy and weapons charges involved in the collar bomb, collar bomb plot. He was sentenced to 45 years in jail. And on April 4th, 2017, Marjorie Dill Armstrong died of breast cancer while serving time at the federal prison in Carswell, Texas. She was 68 years old. And now I can finally take a breath. That yeah. was the entire But that's a roller coaster. Plot. It is. And um, like I'm going to talk about the docuseries, this is all said in much better words in the docuseries. I've just tried to spark note as much information as possible. But um, if you want to hear the whole entire crazy story, definitely watch um, the docuseries, which came out in May of 2018 on Netflix. And it's called Evil Genius, The True Story of America's Most Diabolical Bank Heist. But I'm going to throw up a quick trigger warning for <laughs> anyone who wants to watch it. Um, it's a four-part series. In the first part, when they're talking about the events of the heist, they show the footage of Brian Wells' murder. Oh. And it's a little grainy, and it's not overly gruesome to look at, but it, it is great. a little upsetting. It is somebody... Getting murdered. Get it? Yeah. It's like a bomb goes off, and they don't cut away, and you think they're gonna, and they don't. <laughs> so it is a little bit upsetting, I would have appreciated a little tiny bit of a warning that they weren't going to cut away, but, yeah. you know, Netflix does what they do. Netflix um, does what Netflix wants. <laughs> but if you're going to watch it and you think that it's going to be upsetting, you'll know when it's coming because they're not cutting away and they're talking about it. Um, so just a little little side thing there. Okay. Um, Thank you for letting another, us know. You're welcome. It, yeah, it's it's jarring, yeah, definitely. That's something. That's a thing that um, exists. <clears throat> so, in July of 2018, the YouTube series that we love, BuzzFeed Unsolved, they released an episode about the case, which is also very, very good. Okay. Um, and also, the case was featured on America's Most Wanted three times with a newly released uh, evidence in hopes that officials could gather new clues behind the case. Cool. We love. We yeah, also love America's Most Wanted. Yeah. yeah. And there's one movie that I definitely know the case from, but there's two yep. others that um, <laughs> <laughs> you know. The, you know the one too. Yep. There's actually two others that I didn't know of. Um, one was uh, actually this is a TV series with a famous name, a short-lived 2006 NBC TV series called Heist, dramatized the incident uh, in a pilot featuring Zac Efron. What? As a teenage delivery boy with a bomb on his chest, forced to commit a robbery. No fucking way! Right? Isn't no, that crazy? I would have heard about this. Are you kidding me? It was from 2006, and it's called Heist. I tried to find video of it, and I can't find it anywhere. But um, any fucking sixth grade excuse to see Zac Efron's chest bomb or not, I was there. Ouch! I was there. 
I'm just trying to find out. Hold on. Was this peak Efron? Are we? Are we? No. It, this is that would be pre Efron. Like no, High School Musical came out in 2006. Also. Yeah, but I'm saying it depends on when the series premiered because High School Musical came out. Didn't that come out in like? It might have come out in January. Now that I think about it. I don't know. I just looked up High School Musical and said 2006. But yeah. this also just says it's from 2006 NBC TV series. It doesn't say, like, when this when, episode yeah. premiered. But, um... It should. Hang on. Let me try going on IMDb, because I yeah. know everybody's dying to know. <laughs> um, so I'm just so, doing my due diligence. The episode aired March 22nd, 2006. He was in the pilot. Oh, okay. For, fun fact for people who want to look this stuff up themselves. If you go onto IMDb and you click on an actor and you click on see all on their filmography, there's a little eye with a circle to the right of every single thing that they've been in. And if you click that, it will tell you what episodes they've been in and when they aired. Oh, interesting. The more you know. Oh, yeah. Um, but in this dramatization of the, the heist, um, the bomb was detonated and killed the victim. Although in this show, it was updated with a wireless transmitter. Uh, so instead of yeah, having like the, the kitchen timers and stuff on it, it had a transmitter on it. Hmm. Yeah. Zach Efron, man. Zach Efron, man. So it's believed that the 2007 Colombian film PVC One was inspired by the case. Uh, the film was um, one extended interrupted take, which has become like a big popular thing now. And it tells the story of a Colombian farmer, wife, and mother who falls victim to a bizarre act of terrorism when kidnappers demand that Elvira pay a ransom of $7,000. She fails to raise the money in time. The woman is turned into a human time bomb and forced to endure an excruciating uh, waiting game from which, she, from which there appears to be no escape. That's a big That's yikes. A, yeah. Um, it's got a 54, 54% audience score on Rotten Tomatoes. There's okay. no like actual Rotten Tomatoes score. Now on to the one that we know the most about, which there's a little controversy over, which we'll get to. Yep. So there's a 2011 American comedy film called 30 Minutes or Less. Yeah. And it depicts a pizza delivery man, Jesse Eisenberg, who yep. you know from The Social Network, Zombieland, and soon to be Zombieland 2 Double Tap. Which, uh, sidebar, I just saw the trailer for it, and I was Fucking very terrifying. concerned because I was afraid that it was going to look horrible, but it actually looks very promising, and I'm very excited for it. I'm terrified, and I know I'll probably have to see it, but I don't want to I'm see so it. I'm putting it out there now that I do not want to see it. <laughs> it's going to be so good. So that but when anyway. everybody's like, so Caitlin and Haley are talking about Zombieland 2 Double Tap, I want them to know I, I'm, I'm not, I didn't come up with that idea. No. No. Of course not. I would Any never. Any horror movie. This isn't even a horror movie. It's a comedy. Why can't we just anyway. watch, I don't know, Mom's Got a Date with a Vampire. Something nice and wholesome <gasps> where there's not too much going on. The dad from the nanny is there. Aunt Zelda's there. Hilda, whatever her name is. Stay tuned for an episode where we just talk about decoms, like the Halloween decoms. Shush. Because it's coming. I'll do it. I'll do it <laughs> tenfold. I love it. Anyway. So 30 Minutes or Less is about a pizza delivery guy being forced to wear a vest bomb and rob a bank. And it's not advertised as being inspired by true events. 
The filmmakers and cast said that they had no prior knowledge of the incident, while the screenwriters said they were, quote, vaguely familiar with it, end quote. Nevertheless, the film drew criticism from Gene Hyde, Heed or Hyde, who as well as the sister. Asking me. I'm asking myself. <laughs> uh, yeah, so Wells' sister was uncomfortable with it, and Jerry Clark, who was a former FBI agent who witnessed Wells' death and led the case's investigation. So the plot is a guy has to uh, deliver pizzas to a remote, I think in the movie it's like a junkyard or something, uh, gets kidnapped and has a bomb strapped to him, has to go rob a bank so that the main character, uh, the main villain, can get money to kill his father so that he can get money from his estate. Okay. Now, does that sound like the case that I just laid out for you? No, it sounds like this movie was made by the same guy that made Pain and Gain. Yeah, right? I mean, it's the exact fucking same story. I mean, star-studded cast. Let's talk about it for a second. We already said Jesse Eisenberg's in it. Aziz Ansari, who you know from comedy, Parks and Rec, Masters of None, uh, a bunch of sh- a bunch and of guilt and ladies into having sex with him. Anyway, that's that's a whole other thing. That's a um, whole other thing. I know. That's a whole other thing. Uh, Danny McBride is in it. Pineapple Express. This is the end. And what I didn't know, he was also the screenwriter and producer of the 2018 Halloween remake. Really? It's that's what it said when I, I looked up his name. You know what? I believe it. I believe it. Yeah. Um, and his uh, kind of like dumb and dumber buddy in the uh in the movie is Nick Swartzen, who you know from comedy Reno nine one one, a bunch of stuff with Adam Sandler. Um, Loved the hitman in everything. Yes. The hitman in the movie is Michael Pena, who you know from Narcos, yeah. The Martian, American Hustle, a bunch of in, everything. I think he's in he's in the new Dora movie too. Yes, he is. He's gonna be that Dora's looks dad. Good. I I mean, I'd see it, but I'd see it on a five dollar Tuesday at a theater where nobody yeah. I know can see me. That's true. Okay. Um, and also another uh, who plays the um, who plays Jesse Eisenberg's boss, the the pizza boss in it is brett gelman who everyone just saw in stranger things and he's also in the other guys and a bunch of other stuff yep yep so despite the um criticism it got from being um based on like based on not based on the real case it got a rotten tomato score of 45 percent an audience score of 40 percent and a google score of 85 percent and the critics consensus was it's sporadically funny and benefits from a talented cast, but 30 minutes or less suffers from a disjointed narrative and also and often misses crude gags. Uh, sorry, often mistakes crude gags for the true lowbrow humor. Fair. And if they did say that this is based on true events, it's kind of not cool for it to be a comedy because, again, yeah. somebody did die in this actual scenario. Yeah. Um. I saw this movie before I was aware of this case Mm -hmm. and I enjoyed the movie, but now knowing about the case and knowing that like, Oh yeah, we had no clue about the case, but every single detail is yeah. (laughs) The exact details of the case. I'm like, 
you know it's a little like, weird like i had mentioned sarcastically earlier i felt the need to like also mention that it was sarcastic it's just like pain and gain because it's down to the detail but at the same time it's it's a very good example of even it's not just about being down to every detail uh-huh. because like both movies were extremely disrespectful to the people involved yeah but in different that doesn't necessarily the the sticking to the facts of the case is another side of things there's yeah. different ways like for example we were talking about once upon a time in hollywood last week and mm-hmm. deborah tate approved the screenplay she approved margot robbie and her portrayal of sharon tate all this other stuff like no matter how gory it gets no matter how silly it gets i know we recently shared an article saying that the movie was a love letter to sharon tate Mm-hmm. that's where it matters that's what matters yeah if it's approved by the surviving uh friends and family of yeah. the victims of the case then you know it's probably going to be uh respectful and good and if you're too chicken chicken shit to fucking i can't speak if you're chicken too shit yeah chicken shit if you're <laughs> too chicken shit to actually go to the friends and family of the people involved and be like hey is this okay then you already have your answer yeah, or even admit that you took an exact case and made a comedy out of it. That just blows my mind. I could see if it was like a pizza delivery person was kidnapped. That's just a random plot. But it was a pizza delivery person that was kidnapped and had a bomb strapped to them, told to rob a bank for this purpose. Blah, 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 blah. It's just, it's... There's too many similarities for it just to be, oh, yeah, by the way, we just, we all just thought of that. Nobody had any clue. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds believable. I would believe yeah. that. Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, I also wanted to mention that um, we talked about the entire series of Black Mirror before, but the episode in particular, Shut Up and Dance, has very similar plot points that it's like a deranged scavenger hunt, have to rob a bank, blah, blah, blah. That one I know is not, um, like, is not taking anything from this case, but I just wanted to mention it that it has similar plot points. Yeah. That's the one with the kid who turns out to be, uh, spoiler alert, who turns out to be a um, pedophile. I don't think I know it. Did you watch Black Mirror? I did. Oh, I know what the you're talking from, about it's now. The end of the fucking yeah, world. yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, I know what you're yeah. talking about. I always yeah. forget that ending. That ending, shoot, it, it, it just it hurts every time. But I always forget it. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, that's when Black Mirror was still similar. creepy. That is very similar. Now that you bring that up, that's a good yeah. point. Yeah, just the the um like the the scavenger hunt part of it as being like and ending with uh. You did everything in the scavenger hunt that you possibly could, but you still weren't going to get the result you wanted. Like, it was still turned yeah. against you from the very beginning. Um, so what else do we have in, fo- in pop culture? I don't know. What else do we have? The story was described in detail in the January 2011 issue of Wired magazine. Ooh. Before and- or after the movie came out? Huh. Let's find out when <laughs> 30 Minutes or Less came out. That came out in 2011. Yeah, but when in 2011? Um, because the uh, Wired it... issue was January. The Wired issue was January. Hang on. 
Doing some sleuthing. We should get some elevator music. Yeah. We should just segue August 12th, 2011. That's when uh, it yep. came out in August. Yep. Huh. So maybe somebody saw the January Wired issue and then was like, hey, we can make a movie out of this. No one will notice that it's the same fucking thing. Well, first, let's see when they went into production. Everybody's screaming that we need to move on. <laughs> I'm just, I'm so furious. I don't blame you. Anyway, while you're looking that up, I'll tell you about the um, 2012 book by Jerry Clark and Ed Palatella. And it's called Pizza Bomber, the untold story of America's most shocking bank robbery. And it's a true crime book detailing the events of the crime. Okay. And the case was also covered on various other podcasts. Uh, Georgia mm. Hardstark of My Favorite Murder detailed the story in a episode in July of 2017. Mm -hmm. In August 2017, the story was reported on by Dave Warrenick. I think is how you say it. I'm very sorry if that's wrong. Very sorry. Uh, for the Australian podcast, Do Go On. Okay. Swindled um, covered the case in February 2018. In April 2018, Case File, True Crime, released an episode about the case. And in 28, May of 2018, the podcast Stuff You Know covered the story in an episode. And there's a million other episodes if you look at it under Pizza Bomber Case... Collar bomb heist, blah, 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 blah. You'll find more information on it. Right. And also, speaking of more information, filming took place in Grand Rapids, Michigan from July to September 2010. For 30 minutes or less. So, uh, okay. We so can still hate on them, but they, they did it before. Hmm. All right, then. But we can still but hate. Not before the crime happened. Not before the crime happened, but before the <laughs> Wire article went down. All right. All right. I'll allow it. <laughs> Anyway, that's the whole case. That's the whole thing. The whole shebang. Woohoo. Woohoo. So we will have more information on the case and everything and yes. all the pop culture uh, inspired by it. I will or, find that fucking Zac Efron video if it kills me. Yes, we will put that up definitely if we can find it. And um, that is on crimeculturepodcast.tumblr.com. And while you're there, you can find links to all of our social media, which would be Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, uh, Patreon. Yes, is on we there have also. That. You can join our Patreon. You can email us at crimeculturepod at gmail.com. Um, I think that's it. Anything else? I don't think so. I don't. Yeah. I mean, oh, quick housekeeping. Apparently, we pronounced a bunch of Manson family names wrong. Um, nobody elaborated. Like I said a couple times, I got multiple pronunciations, and so I just went with the one that I thought sounded okay. Yeah. It's, pronunciation it's a little is, tough. is weird. Like, when I'm trying to look up pronunciation for something, I'll try to look up, like, a news source. Yeah. But and then see it, if they say the names. But then news can be wrong, too. Like, there's... Yeah. There's towns surrounding me that have kind of weird names that even, like, the anchors of the towns will say the names wrong. And yeah. I'm like, hmm, suspect. No, um, I get you. yeah, we're going to work harder on pronunciation in the future. But 
Um, yeah, that was just a note. A little correction section for you to Tiny little round one. out the episode. Yeah. But and yeah. you're going to see um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood this uh, weekend? On or Tuesday. This week? On Tuesday. So the day that this, when this comes, comes out, out. the day. So for those who are listening, because it's on Patreon 24 hours before, you you are with me in anticipation on the eve of seeing Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. For everybody else, I'm seeing it at some point, probably while you're listening. So mm. I'll let you guys know next week. All right. Yeah, we'll do uh, a little tiny review. I don't know if yeah. I'll have seen it by then. I don't know when I'm going to see it, but very exciting. Yes. Oh, yeah. Woo! In the meantime, uh, website, um, social media, everything. All right. So we'll see you next Tuesday. Tuesday. Okay, bye. Bye-bye.